Chapter 1 of The Winning of Popular Government. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bruce Kachuk. The Winning of Popular Government, a Chronicle of the Union of 1841, by Archibald McMeekin. Chapter 1 Durham the Dictator and let him be dictator for six months and no more the curious sights here in modern toronto conducted through the well-kept endless avenues of handsome dwellings which are that city's pride might be surprised to learn that at the northern end of the street which cuts the city in two halves east and west bands of armed canadians met in battle less than a century ago if he continued his travels to montreal he might be told at a certain point here stood the parliament buildings when our city was the capital of the country and here a governor-general of canada was mobbed pelted with rotten eggs and stones and narrowly escaped with his life and if the intelligent traveller asked the reason for such scenes where now all is peace the answer might be given in one word politics to the young politics seems rather a stupid sort of game played by the bald and obese middle-aged for very high stakes and governed by no rules that any player is bound to respect between the rival teams no difference is observable save that one enjoys the sweets of office and the mouth of the other is watering for them but this is of course the hasty judgment of uncharitable youth the struggle between political parties in canada arose in the past from a difference in political principles it was a difference that could be defined it could be put into plain words on the one side and the other the guiding ideas could be formulated they could be defended and they could be attacked in logical debate sometimes it might pass the wit of man to explain the difference between the ins and the outs sometimes politics may be a game but often it has been a battle in support of their political principles the strongest passions of men have been aroused and their deepest convictions of right and wrong the things by which men live their religious creeds their pride of race have been enlisted on the one side and the other this is true of canadian politics that ominous date eighteen thirty seven marks a certain climax or culmination in the political development of canada the constitution of the country now works with so little friction that those who have not read history assume that it must always have worked so there is a real danger in forgetting that not so very long ago the whole machinery of government in one province broke down that for months if not for years it looked as if civil government in lower canada had come to an end as if the colonial system of britain had failed beyond all hope deus nobis aec ocia fecit but Canada's present tranquillity did not come about by miracle. It came about through the efforts of faulty men, contending for political principles in which they believed, and for which they were even ready to die. The rebellions of 1837, in Upper and Lower Canada, and what led up to them, the origins and causes of these rebellions, must be understood, if the subsequent warfare of parties, and the evolution of the scattered colonies of British North America, into the compact united dominion of canada are not to be a confused and meaningless tale futile and pitiful as were the rebellions whether regarded as attempts to set up new government or as military adventures 
they had widespread and most serious consequences within and without the country in britain the news caused consternation two more american colonies were in revolt battles had been fought and british troops had been defeated these might prove as thought storrow brown one of the leaders of the sons of liberty in lower canada so many lexingtons with a saratoga and a yorktown to follow sir john colburn the commander-in-chief was asking for reinforcements in lower canada civil government was at an end there was danger of international complications for disorders almost without precedent the british parliament found an almost unprecedented remedy it invested one man with extraordinary powers he was to be captain-general and commander-in-chief over the provinces of british north america and also high commissioner for the adjustment of certain important questions depending in the provinces of lower and upper canada respecting the form and future government of the said provinces he was given full power and authority by all lawful ways and means to inquire into and as far as may be possible to adjust all questions respecting the form and administration of the civil government of the provinces as aforesaid these extraordinary powers were conferred upon a distinguished politician in the name of the young queen victoria and during her pleasure the usual and formal language of the commission especial trust and confidence in the courage prudence and loyalty of the commissioner has in this case deep meaning for courage prudence and loyalty were all needed and were all to be put to the test the man born for the crisis was a type of a class hardly to be understood by the canadian democracy he was an aristocratic radical his recently acquired title lord durham must not be allowed to obscure the fact that he was a lambton the head of an old county family which was entitled by its long descent to look down upon half the house of peers as parvenus at the family seat lambton castle in the county of durham lambton after lambton had lived and reigned like a petty prince there john george was born in august seventeen ninety two his father had been a whig a consistent friend of charles james fox at a time when opposition to the government owing to the wars with france meant social ostracism and he had refused a peerage the son had enjoyed the usual advantages of the young englishman in his position he had been educated at eton and at the university of cambridge three years in a crack cavalry regiment at a time when all england was under arms could have done little to lessen his feeling for his caste a gretna green marriage with an heiress while he was yet a minor is characteristic of his impetuous temperament as is also a duel which he fought with a mr beaumont in eighteen twenty during the heat of an election contest after the period of political reaction following waterloo reaction in which all europe shared england proceeded on the path of reform towards a modified democracy and lambton entering parliament at the lucky moment found himself on the crest of the wave his whig principles had gained the victory and his personal ability and energy set him among the leaders of the new reform movement he was the son-in-law of earl grey the author of the reform bill of eighteen thirty two and he became a member of the grey cabinet before the canadian crisis he had shown his ability to cope with a difficult situation in a diplomatic mission to russia where he is said to have succeeded by the exercise of tact he was nicknamed radical jack but any one less democratic 
as the term is commonly understood, it would be hard to find. He surrounded himself with almost regal state during his brief overlordship of Canada. In Quebec, at the castle of St. Louis, he lived like a prince. Many tales are told of his arrogant self-assertion and hauteur. In person, he was strikingly handsome. Lawrence painted him when a boy. He was an able public speaker. He had a fiery temper, which made cooperation with him almost impossible, and which his weak health no doubt aggravated. He was vain and ambitious, but he was gifted with powers of political insight. He possessed a febrile energy and an earnest desire to serve the common weal. Such was the physician chosen by the British government to cure the cankers of misrule and disaffection in the body politic of Canada. Lord Durham received his commission in March 1838, but, though the need was urgent for prompt action, he did not immediately set out for Canada. For the delay, he was criticized by his political opponents, particularly by Lord Brougham, once his friend, but now his bitterest enemy. On the 24th of April, however, Durham sailed from Plymouth in HMS Hastings with a party of 22 persons. Besides his military aids for decorative purposes, he brought in his suite some of the best brains of the time, Thomas Turton, Edward Gibbon Wakefield, and Carlyle's gigantic pupil, Charles Buller. It is characteristic of Durham that he should bring a band of music with him, and that he should work his secretaries hard all the way across the Atlantic. On the 29th of May, the Hastings was at Quebec. Lord Durham was received by the acting administrator, Sir John Colburn, and conducted through the crowded streets between a double hedge of soldiery to the castle of St. Louis, the viceregal residence. If Durham had been slow in setting out for the scene of his labors, he wasted no time in attacking his problems upon his arrival in Canada. Princely in his style of living, indefatigable in business, energetic and decided, though haughty in manner, and desirous to benefit the Canadas, is the judgment of a contemporary upon the new ruler. On the day he was sworn to office, he issued his first proclamation. Its most significant statements are, The honest and conscientious advocates of reform will receive from me, without distinction of party, race, or politics, that assistance and encouragement which their patriotism has a right to command. But the disturbers of the public peace, the violators of the law, the enemies of the crown and of the British Empire, will find in me an uncompromising opponent, determined to put in force against them all the powers, civil and military, with which I have been invested. It was a policy of firmness united to conciliation that Durham announced. He came bearing the sheathed sword in one hand and the olive branch in the other. The proclamation was well received. The Canadians were ready to accept him as a friend and arbitrator. He was to earn the right to both titles. Durham was determined to begin with a clean slate. With a characteristic disregard for precedent, he dismissed the existing executive council, as well as Colburn's special band of advisers, and formed two new councils in their place, consisting of members of his personal staff, military officers, Canadian judges, the provincial secretary, and the commissary general. Together they formed a committee of investigation and advice, and, being composed of both local and non-local elements, it was a committee specially fitted to supply the necessary information, and to judge all questions dispassionately from an outside point of view. This committee, 
acting with the high commissioner took the place of regular constitutional government in lower canada it was an arbitrary makeshift adopted to meet a crisis during the long tedious voyage of the hastings the high commissioner had not been idle he had worked steadily for many hours a day at the knotty canadian question studying papers drafting plans discussing point after point with his secretaries once in the country he set to work in the most thoroughgoing and systematic way to gather further knowledge he appointed commissions to report on all special problems of government education immigration municipal governments the management of the crown lands he obtained reports from all sources he conferred with men of all shades of political opinion he called representative deputations from the uttermost regions under his sway he made a flying visit to niagara in order to see the country with his own eyes and to study conditions such labors were beyond the capacity of any one man but durham was ably supported by his band of loyal helpers and a public eager to cooperate the result of all this activity was the amassing of the priceless data from which was formed the great document known as lord durham's report it is generally overlooked that at this period canada stood in danger from external as well as internal enemies hardly had durham landed at quebec when there occurred a series of incidents which might have led to war between great britain and the united states a canadian passenger steamer the sir robert peel sailing from prescott to kingston was boarded at wells island by one bill johnson and a band of armed men with blackened faces the passengers and crew were put ashore without their effects and the steamer was set on fire and destroyed very soon afterwards an american passenger steamer was fired on by overzealous sentries at brockville together the twin outrages were almost enough in the state of feeling on both sides to set the empire and the republic by the ears the significance of these and other similar incidents can only be understood by recalling the mental attitude of americans of the day they had a robust detestation of everything british it is not grossly exaggerated by dickens in martin chuzzlewit and that attitude was entirely natural the americans had or thought they had beaten the british in two wars the very reason for the existence of their nation was their opposition to british tyranny they saw that tyranny in all its balefulness blighting the two canadas they saw those oppressed colonies rising as they themselves had risen against their oppressors to make the danger all the more acute the exiled canadians notably william lyon mackenzie went from place to place in the united states inciting the free-born citizens of the republic to aid the cause of freedom across the line there was a precedent for intervention just a year before the fight at st charles an american hero sam houston had wrested the huge state of texas from the misrule of mexico and founded a new and independent republic hence arose the huge conspiracy of the hunters lodges all along the northern border of the united states of which more in the next chapter durham took prompt action he offered a reward of a thousand pounds for such information as should bring the guilty persons to trial in an american not a canadian court thereby he said in effect this is not an international affair it is a plain offence against the laws of the united states and i am confident that the united states desires to prevent such outrages 
he followed up this bold declaration of faith in american justice by sending his brother-in-law colonel gray of the seventy-first regiment to washington to lay the facts before president van buren and to remonstrate vigorously against the laxity which permitted an armed force to organize within the borders of the republic for an attack upon its peaceful neighbor such laxity was against the law of nations as a result of durham's spirited action the military forces on both sides of the boundary line worked in concert to put down such lawlessness president van buren's attitude however cost him his popularity in his own country the most pressing and most thorny question was how to deal with the hundreds of prisoners who since the rebellion had filled the canadian jails a large number of these were only suspected of treason some had been taken in the act of rebellion and some were confined as ringleaders charged with crimes no government could overlook and hope to survive in some countries the solution would have been a simple one the prisoners would have been backed against the nearest wall and fusillated in batches as the communists were dealt with in paris in the red quarter of the year eighteen seventy one even in canada there were hideous cries for bloody reprisals but the ingrained british habit of giving the worst criminal a fair trial blocked such a ready and easy way of restoring tranquillity still a fair trial was impossible in the temper then prevailing in the province no french jury would condemn no english jury would acquit a frenchman charged with treason however great or slight his fault might prove to be the process of trying so many hundreds of prisoners would be simply so many examples of the law's burdensome delay to leave them to rot in prison as king bomba left political offenders against his rule was unthinkable durham met the difficulty in a bold and merciful way the young queen was crowned on june twenty eighth eighteen thirty eight such an event is always a season of rejoicing and an opportunity for exercising the royal clemency in the liberation of captives following this excellent custom durham proclaimed on that day an amnesty in his sovereign's name and in a month after his arrival he gave freedom to hundreds of unfortunates who had endured many hardships in the old cruel jails of the time in addition to the tortures of suspense as to their ultimate fate there were some who could not be so released they were only eight in number but they were such men as wolfred nelson and robert bouchette whose treason was open and notorious they knew and durham knew that they could not obtain a fair trial therefore the high commissioner overleapt the law and by an ordinance banished these ringleaders to bermuda during her majesty's pleasure durham was much pleased at this happy solution of a difficult and delicate problem he congratulated himself as well he might on having terminated a rebellion without shedding a drop of blood the guilty have received justice the misguided mercy he wrote to the queen but at the same time security is afforded to the loyal and peaceable subjects of this hitherto distracted province furthermore his proceedings had been approved by all parties sir j colburn and all the british party the canadians and all the french party durham fancied that this question was now settled and that he could proceed unhampered with his main task of reconstruction but his justifiable satisfaction was not to last long while the high commissioner was laboring in canada as few officials have ever labored for the good of the empire 
his enemies and his lukewarm friends in england were between them preparing his downfall of his foes the most bitter and unscrupulous was brome a political ishmael a curious compound of malignity and versatile intellectual power he had criticized durham's delay in starting for canada and he was only too glad of the handle which the autocratic czar-like ordinance of banishment to bermuda offered him against his enemy it is nearly always in the power of a party politician to distort and misrepresent the act of an opponent however just or blameless that act may be brome made a great pother about the rights of freemen usurpation dictatorship as a lawyer he raised the legal point that durham could not banish offenders from canada to a colony over which he had no jurisdiction he enlisted other lawyers on his side to attack the composition of durham's council the storm brome raised might have done no harm if durham's political allies had stood by him like men but the prime minister melbourne always a timorous friend bent before the blast and durham's ordinance was disallowed the high commissioner who had been granted such great powers was held to have exceeded those powers durham belonged to the caste which felt a stain upon its honor like a wound the disallowance of his ordinance by the home authorities was a blow fair in the face it put an end to his career in canada by undermining his authority in those days of slow communication the news of the disallowance reached him tardily by a side wind from an american newspaper he first learned the fact on the twenty fifth of september he at once sent in his resignation told the people of canada the reason why in a proclamation and as soon as possible left the country forever brome was burned in effigy at quebec the lucky eight already in bermuda were speedily released never did leaders of an unsuccessful rebellion suffer less for their indiscretion from bermuda they proceeded to new york to renew their agitation on the first of november durham left quebec as he had entered that city with all the pomp of military pageantry and in a universal display of public interest he came in a crisis he left amid a crisis he had spent five months in office almost the exact term for which the romans chose their chief magistrate in a national emergency and named him dictator in the eyes of durham's enemies his ordinance of banishment was a ukase and at first blush it looks like an unwarrantable stretching of his powers but durham was on the ground and must necessarily have known the conditions prevailing much better than his critics three thousand miles away desperate diseases need desperate remedies the presumption is always that the man on the ground will be right and posterity has passed a final judgment of approval on durham's bold slashing of the gordian knot new facts have set the whole matter in a new light a paper of bullers hitherto unpublished shows that the ordinance was promulgated only after consultation with the prisoners the prisoners who expected the government to avail itself of its power of packing a jury were very ready to petition to be disposed of without trial and as i had in the meantime ascertained that the proposed mode of dealing with them would not be condemned by the leading men of the british party lord durham adopted the plan proposed they regarded banishment as an unexpected mercy as well they might the only alternative was the dock the condemned cell and the gallows on the thirtieth of november durham landed at plymouth and by the middle of the following january he had finished his report 
Early in February it was printed and laid before the House of Commons. The curious legend which credits Buller with the authorship is traceable to Brougham's spite. Macaulay and Brougham met in a London street. The great Whig historian praised the report. Brougham belittled it. The matter, he averred, came from a felon, the style from a coxcomb, and the dictator furnished only six letters, D-U-R-H-A-M. The whole question has been carefully discussed by Stuart J. Reed in his Life and Letters of the First Earl of Durham, and the myth has been given its quietus. Even if direct external evidence were lacking, a dispassionate examination of the document itself would dispose of the legend. In style, temper, and method, it is in the closest agreement with Durham's public dispatches and private letters. The drafting of this most notable of state papers was the last of Durham's services to the empire. A little more than a year later, he was dead and laid to rest in his own county. Fifty thousand people attended his funeral. A mausoleum in the form of a Greek temple marks his grave. The funds for this monument were raised by public subscription. Such was the force of popular esteem. His dying words were prophetic. Canada will one day do justice to my memory. The report was Durham's legacy to his country. It defined once for all the principles that should govern the relations of the colony with the mother country and laid the foundations of the present Canadian unity. It did not please the factions in Canada. It was too plain-spoken. Exception may be taken, even at the present day, to some of its recommendations and conclusions. But its faithful pictures of this hitherto turbulent colony enable the historical student and the honest patriot to measure the progress the country has since made on the road to nationhood. If unpleasant, it is very easy reading. Few parliamentary reports are closer packed with vital facts or couched in clearer language. To the task of its composition, the author brought energy, insight, a sense of public duty, a desire to be fair, and, best of all, an open mind, a perfect readiness to relinquish prepossessions or prejudices in the face of fresh facts. His ample scheme of investigation as carried out by himself and his corps of able helpers, had put him in control of a huge assemblage of data. On this he reasoned with admirable results. The report consists of four parts. The first, and by far the largest portion, deals with Lower Canada as the main storm centre. The second is concerned with Upper Canada. The third with the Maritime Provinces and Newfoundland. Having diagnosed the disease in the body politic, Durham proposes a remedy. The fourth part is an outline of the curative process suggested. I expected to find a contest between a government and a people. I found two nations warring in the bosom of a single state. In that one sentence, Durham praises the situation in Lower Canada. Nothing will surprise the Canadian of today more than the evidence adduced of the deadly animosity which then existed between the two races. The very children in the streets fought. French against English. Social intercourse between the two was impossible. The report shows the historical origin and carefully traces the course of this deadly animosity. It finds much to admire in the character of the French habitant, but spares neither his faults nor the shortcomings of his political leaders. It shows that the original racial quarrel was aggravated by the conduct of the governing officials, both at home and in Canada, 
until the French took up arms. The consequences were evils which no civilized community can long continue to bear. There must be a decision, and it must be prompt and final. In Upper Canada, Durham found a different situation. There the people were not slavish tools of a narrow official clique or a few purse-proud merchants, but hardy farmers and humble mechanics composing a very independent, not very manageable, and sometimes a rather turbulent democracy. The trouble was that a small party had secured a monopoly of power and resisted the lawful efforts of moderate reformers to establish a truly democratic form of government. Ill-balanced extremists had taken up arms, but the sound political instinct of the vast majority was against them. Here, too, the original difficulties had been complicated by official ignorance in England and the unwisdom of authorities on the spot. The result was that these ample and fertile territories were in a backward, almost desperate condition. Their poverty and stagnation were a depressing contrast to the prosperity and exhilarating stir of the great American democracy. The other outlying provinces presented no such serious problems. There were various anomalies and difficulties, but they were on their way to removal. The evils which no civilized community could bear were to be cured by a legislative union of the Canadas. The time had gone by for a federal union. A door must be either open or shut. The French province must become definitely a British province and find its place in the empire. To end the everlasting deadlock between the governor and the representatives of the people, the executive should be made responsible to the assembly. And, in order to bring the scattered provinces closer together, an intercolonial railway should be built. In other words, the obsolete, bad system of colonial government must undergo radical reform, both within and without. Because, while the present state of things is allowed to last, the actual inhabitants of these provinces have no security for person or property, no enjoyment of what they possess, no stimulus to industry. The story of how this reform was undertaken, and of how, in spite of many obstacles, it was brought to a triumphant success, must always remain one of the most important chapters in the political history of Canada. End of chapter 1